9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello. My first guest uh, today is Lawrence O'Donnell. We're very happy to have Lawrence with us for this special episode. This is the 200th episode of Deep State Radio. Lawrence, as all of you know, uh, is the host of The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC uh, every night at 10 p.m. Uh, he uh, came to Washington, D.C. almost three decades ago, I guess, uh, uh, working as a staffer for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, uh, rising to very senior positions on the Senate Finance Committee uh, staff, and then uh, going on and, and, and working on a number of television projects, notably the West Wing, where he was a producer and a writer. Subsequent to that, of course, he uh, uh, took on a career in the media uh, uh, as a, an observer and ultimately as host of his own show. Uh, uh, not too long ago, about, about a year ago, he produced a book called Playing with Fire, which was a study of the 1968 election, a watershed election, and I'd like to get to that in a bit. Welcome, Lawrence. Great to be here. Uh, so here we are. It's a Thursday afternoon, kind of rainy Thursday afternoon in New York. It seems like it's probably worse than that in Washington and, and elsewhere in the country. And, um, you know, I, I, I was thinking a little bit as, as I was looking back at the, at the first parts of your career. That's right when I got to Washington as well. And regularly folks, including some folks on on your network will say, well, you know, back in the good old days, um, Democrats could sit down with Republicans and, and they had their differences, but then they, I don't know, they played poker, they had a drink together, they laughed about it, uh, and, you know, everything was somehow more uh, constructive. But it seemed to me, and I got to Washington a little bit after you, Almost immediately after I got there, you had Newt Gingrich, you had a Republican revolution, you had people like Tom DeLay, you had the Tea Party, you had et cetera, et cetera, that it's actually been pretty dysfunctional uh, for a long while. And I was just wondering how, when you reflect on it, does now compare to then? Well, uh, now is, of course, the worst of times. But what's so important about saying that is, uh, based on what you just said, we felt it was the worst of times in 1990 and uh, uh, because of Newt Gingrich, because Newt Gingrich was the first version of what we see in Republican politics today. Republican politics had extreme conservatives uh, back then, um, Jesse Helms in the Senate. Um, but Gingrich did something new. G Gingrich became a demonizer. He believed that uh, he could only profit by demonizing the other side and demonizing individuals on the other side. That was brand new. Uh, other than that, you know, uh, peculiar uh, and not particularly partisan uh, outburst by Joe McCarthy and others about ferreting out the communists in government in the 1950s, uh, that that was 
a, just one sort of isolated burst of madness. Uh, the Gingrich thing was a much more serious and dedicated change that he was trying to achieve and did achieve. And so um, I was working in the Senate while Newt Gingrich, when Newt Gingrich became the, the Speaker of the House, uh, which none of us saw coming, by the way. It was the first Democratic loss of the House of Representatives uh, in my lifetime. And uh, I'd never seen in my life a Republican-controlled House of Representatives. It had been 40 years. And so um, so Gingrich was the first Republican speaker I'd ever seen. Uh, and he, he didn't uh, conform to any of the previous governing uh, behavioral orthodoxies by people who, no matter how, you know, kind of rambunctious they might try to sound on their way up the ladder, by the time they got to the job where the power was, the power uh, dictated a certain kind of behavior that they all emulated in one way or another. And so uh, presidential behavior from one party to the other was very, very similar. And um, and but Gingrich was very different. Um, luckily for us in the Senate, Bob Dole was not very different. Bob Dole was the became the uh, Republican majority leader of the Senate, and it was my first time working in the Senate where the Republicans took over. And um, although the switch of parties between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate was much more frequent than it had been in the House in the past. So Dole was still a very reasonable Republican with whom the disagreements were simply about governing philosophy. Uh, the shorthand of it was that uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the liberal senator from New York who I worked for, was in favor of much more government and more expensive government than Bob Dole was. But Bob Dole didn't think that Pat Moynihan was crazy, and Bob Dole didn't think Pat Moynihan was un-American. Um, he just thought Pat Moynihan was going to try to do things with government that he didn't think we as taxpayers could afford to do. Um, Bob Dole's counter to liberal policies was almost always we can't afford it. It was almost never that's a truly terrible idea, and and it comes from a bad place in your in your heart that you're proposing that idea. So um, the Gingrich dysfunction in the House, we thought, was the worst thing we had seen enter government. Now um, that has moved to take over all of Republican politics, and Mitch McConnell is, is is worse than Newt Gingrich ever was. And let me just add this footnote. When I was working in the Senate, Mitch McConnell was one of the reasonable Republicans in the United States Senate, perfectly reasonable man who found himself in bipartisan compromise and, and bipartisan agreement uh, quite frequently, uh, sometimes on some very important things. Uh, Mitch McConnell was the chairman of the Senate Ethics Committee who recommended the expulsion of the Republican chairman of the Senate Finance Committee for sexual harassment. And that Republican chairman of the Senate Finance Committee resigned instead of face a certain expulsion vote uh, by the United States Senate. Uh, that's an unimaginable condition the, to find Mitch McConnell in today. Uh, and so uh, when I look at today, um, the days that I referred to as the good old days really are kind of good and old uh, by comparison. 
but they didn't feel that way at the time. Well, you know, it's interesting because I think Nancy Pelosi arrived uh, in the House in the late 80s. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Biden ran for president the first time in, in 1988, although he'd sort of been planning to do so his whole life. And they were very much a product of that period and everything that intervenes. Um, and, you know, Biden's gotten some heat recently for saying, well, once I got in, I'd be able to reason with these people. Um, do you think that's just a kind of post-traumatic stress disorder? Does he forget? Is he, is he hearkening no, to I think this it's other a, era? I think it's a political position that Joe Biden has taken. Um, and I don't think I think he understands as well as anyone how intractable uh, the Republicans are now. And I think he understands as well as anyone that we've never seen anything like this before. And he knows that the day Barack Obama was elected, Mitch McConnell privately vowed. And then what was weird about it was he publicly vowed uh, to try to, you know, stop this new president. Now, in the election of every previous president, the, when, a, when, the, when a Republican president won the presidency, the Democratic Speaker of the House was determined to drive that president out of office in four years. But the Speaker of the House never said that publicly. <laughs> and the Speaker of the House believed that the country didn't want to hear that. And the Speaker of the House believed that uh, he had an obligation larger than just trying to drive the president out of office. And so he would also, while trying to drive the president out of office, have to work with the president and accomplish things that were necessary for the country. And so there was a certain, you know, push and pull of that uh, dynamic in the past. McConnell was the first leader of either body ever uh, in, you know, in, in the modern times to come out and say uh, publicly upon election of a new president of the other party that I'm determined to drive him out of office in four years. Uh, And Joe Biden suffered all of that. And he knew what they went through uh, in trying to deal with McConnell. And he certainly saw Mitch McConnell do something that had never happened before and simply not allow a Supreme Court nominee to even have a confirmation hearing. Uh, So I think Biden knows exactly how bad it is. I I think Biden knows that he has no more leverage uh, with those people than Barack Obama did. And he, I'm sure, is smart enough to know it's only going to be worse. If Joe Biden were were elected, they would be even worse to him than they were uh, to Barack Obama. But I think it is simply um, a Biden, it's political speech. It's Biden trying to talk to people uh, out there in the middle of the country who he knows uh, hate the kind of fighting that goes on in Washington. And he's trying to suggest to them uh, that it can be different and uh, he can help make it different. And my strong suspicion, knowing Joe Biden as I do and having worked with him as I did and knowing how, in fact, wise and insightful he is uh, about Republicans and Republicans in the Senate in particular. I think uh, when he says that stuff, uh, it is half-hearted at best, and it's not unusual. Uh, There's not a single candidate for president who stands up there uh, without saying a minimum of 30 percent of the stuff in a given candidate speech is absolutely unattainable, and the candidate knows that. And they say it anyway for aspirational purposes and to try to define for you what kind of person they are and how they see government. 
You know, it's it's interesting. I, I I'm finishing up a book about um, past instances of high level betrayals of the United States, trying to put the recent one with uh, uh, Trump into some perspective. But the one thing that comes through uh, is that there are many, many, many periods in American history, and in fact, almost all of American history, when the infighting has been brutal. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton arrived in Washington and immediately put in place newspaper editors to run newspapers that would attack the other one, even while they were in the government. And you know, the greatest Supreme Court justice of all time, arguably John Marshall, was appointed by a lame duck president and rushed into approval by a lame duck Congress uh, uh, in a way that infuriated uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, who thought he would get to pick the next uh, chief justice. Um, and of course, it was made a little worse by the fact that John Marshall was his cousin and they hated each other. Um, but you know, this is this has been going on a long time. I guess the question becomes what lessons we learn from it. And one of the, you know, uh, big issues, obviously, of today is what do you do about a president who has betrayed the country, violated the emoluments clause, been accused serial times of uh, sexual abuse, um, uh, undermined the rule of law in countless different ways. And there is a kind of a rift within the Democratic Party about how hard you might go after him, whether you have an impeachment inquiry or an impeachment proceeding. And, and you know, this gets us to Nancy Pelosi's experience, which began back in those days. But she lived through an impeachment process with Bill Clinton in the late 90s. And it seems to me she may have taken some lessons away from that that are not really applicable today. In other words, it was a very different kind of impeachment for very different kind of reasons uh, that left a very different kind of taste in the public's mouth than, say, the Nixon impeachment uh, or other examples. Uh, and I'm just wondering, do you, know, do you agree? Do you think she's taken the wrong lessons from that uh, uh, and from that period in history, which, after all, was 20 years ago? Oh, yeah, she, she definitely has, and she made that very clear last year when she would talk about it uh, publicly. She's changed her tune uh, publicly in, in many ways. She's refined it. But remember, uh, this is the, the only member uh, of the House of Representatives who found herself saying uh, that he wasn't worth it. That was her phrase, that, that Donald Trump wasn't worth the impeachment process. Um, that was a that was that was that just is an example of how um, carelessly she was prepared to phrase comments about impeachment last year during the midterm election campaigns. Now I understand politically why she didn't want impeachment in the election campaigns because it was in the election campaigns whether you said it or not. Uh, voters didn't have to go to the polls and say I'm voting for the Democrat for impeachment. They knew that voting for the Democrat makes impeachment more likely, and voting for the Republican in the House makes impeachment impossible. Um, and they voted the way they voted. And yes, the candidates were talking about the Affordable Care Act and the president trying to take health care away from people, which was true and which was extremely effective uh, politically. And so I, I would have probably, as a strategist, and uh, been joined in agreement in the notion that the way the congressional midterm election campaign should run uh, should not focus on impeachment and should deal with impeachment only when voters ask the question. Um, 
And but that's a that's a strategic decision about how to talk about something before it can becomes a a possible governing burden of yours. And if the Democrats didn't win the midterm elections, they'd never have to figure out what to say about impeachment because it would all be impossible because they wouldn't be in control of the House of Representatives. But then they won. And on the night that the Repo- that the Democrats won the House of Representatives, their relationship and their responsibility, including their moral responsibility to the question of impeachment, changed dramatically because they were now in control of the answer to the question of impeachment. It was up to them. And so I had Jerry Nadler on the show very soon after the Democrats uh, won the House of Representatives, and I asked him about impeachment, and that was back in the day when Jerry Nadler and uh, Nancy Pelosi and others were all doing this um, echoed comment about how it's so divisive to the country and you can't do it unless the country agrees on it. Uh, it's, if you remember, it's all language that's disappeared from the discussion now. I smacked it down immediately with Jerry Nadler, who I've known you know, since I was working for his senior senator uh, in New York, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, I, I, and I just said, well, impeachment's always been divisive for the country. You can't do anything about that. And, and my point on impeachment to Jerry Nadler at that stage was, I don't care at all about the Mueller report. There's no reason to even talk about what's the Mueller report going to say. The president of the United States was already an unindicted co-conspirator with Michael Cohen in federal court in New York. And Michael Cohen testified under oath that the president of the United States directed him to commit these crimes. And the president committed these crimes with Michael Cohen in order to win the presidency. And importantly, on top of that, federal prosecutors wrote in submissions to the federal court uh, in New York and spoke in hearings in federal court in New York saying exactly those things, which they are not allowed to say unless they firmly believe it to be true and unless they firmly believe they have proved it beyond a reasonable doubt within their operations of the Michael Cohen case, which they did. They proved it so beyond reasonable doubt that Michael Cohen pleaded guilty. That is all you need to impeach any president of the United States, that the president directed the commission of campaign felonies in order to win the presidency, and federal prosecutors have so declared. Uh, I put that to Nadler in a shorter form, and he immediately had to back off, and uh, you could kind of see that the talking points that the leadership, the House leadership had come up with immediately started to rattle. And Jerry Nadler knows me, and he he knew this wasn't going to get any easier. And he's also a reasonable man. You'll notice that when you present reason to Jerry Nadler, he doesn't have quick escapes from it. So that's why you'll notice when he's asked uh, about this stuff publicly, he's much more honest about it than, uh, than Nancy Pelosi is, and he's much more direct about it and much more clear about it. Um, and so the failure has already occurred. The, the, this is, I mean, I said to Jerry at the time, I said, can this really be the House of Representatives that lets it stand in history that a president of the United States can be 
an unindicted co-conspirator in a felony and felonies committed in order to win the presidency. But that can be the official position to be left to history by this Democratic uh, House of Representatives. And then Jerry immediately started to wobble off of the <laughs> anti-impeachment talking points. Um, but that, that um, the, the lesson, to go back to your question that, that Nancy Pelosi is relying on, is this ridiculously foolish mistake that Democrats in the House of Representatives at that time made uh, when Bill Clinton was impeached by the Republican House of Representatives and then not convicted and removed from office by the two-thirds of the Senate that is necessary. Uh, but there were 50 votes in the Senate to remove Bill Clinton from office. History will show that it wasn't some fringe level of voting. It wasn't nine votes uh, to remove the president in the Senate and, and 92 votes in his favor. There were not. They were not. And, and so uh, what happened in the Senate was for most of the Democrats in the Senate who voted not to remove Bill Clinton, most of the Democrats who met in the Senate who made a statement about that did not say one defensive word about what Bill Clinton was accused of doing. Not one defensive word. What they said was, having considered all the evidence, we don't think that this rises to the level that requires the removal of the president, therefore I'm voting no. But they did not fight with what the uh, prosecutors were saying about Bill Clinton in the Senate. What the House of Representatives did was truly disgraceful. Bill Clinton was impeached by the Republican House of Representatives on, on the very day that Bill Clinton was impeached. Chuck Schumer, who was then a member of the House, and and this giant gang, most, if not just about all of the House Democrats, piled onto buses and went down to the White House Rose Garden. And they held a rally of support for Bill Clinton with Bill Clinton president in the White House Rose Garden on the day that he got impeached. And if you look at the images of it, they're all laughing and smiling as if they have just passed the most important new education bill or the, the most wonderfully progressive bill that they've been trying to pass for decades. Uh, it, it looks like that. And in the public imagery of the moment, they, they fully embraced the, this imagery of the Democratic Party as the defenders of perjury and sex with the interns. And, and, it, it, and then and they see that Bill Clinton's approval rating goes up during the impeachment process. And they took that to be the, uh, a kind of polling fact that the Republican impeachment in the House of Representatives hurt the Republicans because Bill Clinton's theoretical approval number went up. A president who's in his second term, who cannot run for re-election, who has no political stock whatsoever, uh, his approval number is a theoretical number that has no meaning in politics. And so what happens the Democrats obviously must have won back the House of Representatives, and they must have won back the Senate if impeachment was bad for the Republicans, and they surely must have won the presidency in the next election, and they did not. They lost all of those things. And Bill Clinton's vice president, Al Gore, lost uh, in that campaign uh, against George Bush. And so 
you know, there was no political price whatsoever paid by the Republicans for acting uh, uh, on what they believed was the thing that they should do uh, to Bill Clinton, which was impeach him. And the Nancy Pelosi class of Democrats believe falsely that the Clinton impeachment was somehow politically bad for Republicans, and that's why they're afraid of impeachment now. Yeah, and of course now, quite unlike the time we were speaking with Jerry Nadler, it's not just the Michael Cohn case and the findings in that case, but you now do have the Mueller report. You do have 10 instances of obstruction of justice. You you also have a pattern of behavior by the uh, Trump administration where they have taken it upon themselves to ignore subpoenas from Congress, to ignore um, uh, the law with regard to, uh, for example, uh, handing over tax returns uh, to the uh, uh, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, uh, and, you know, qu- quite apart from compounding evidence of prior uh, crimes on the part of the president, whether they have to do with tax fraud or, or sexual abuse. So now the, 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 the bill uh, um, uh, against this particular president is much, much greater. Uh, and the, as you point out, the Democrats were elected into the majority in the House to do something about it. Nadler seems to want to, and as of this day that we are recording this, has issued 12 subpoenas for people associated with um, uh, the Mueller report, witnesses associated with the Mueller report. Um, but Pelosi still seems to be pushing very hard, saying our strategy is we're going to pass a bunch of bills that are not going to get passed in the Senate, but show our good intentions. Uh, we're going to lay back on uh, you know issues of impeachment, which we see as uh, divisive. Um, and we are going to uh, unelect Donald Trump you know, in, in 18 months. But it seems to me that particularly when you look at this in the historical context, as you presented it, what does that do but send a message to future presidents about the uh, difficulty of enforcing um, uh, contempt of Congress um, uh, resolutions, about the uh, difficulty of enforcing subpoenas, about the, the, the role of a president as being above the law. And, and, and this is compounded, of course, by the fact that Trump has in Attorney General Bill Barr someone who is actively working to promote the idea of this unitary executive, of someone who is the most powerful person in the government and who can literally decide his own fate, whether or not he is guilty of crimes or not. Uh, And so it seems to me that inaction carries very severe consequences. Uh, historically, in terms of setting precedent, and that seems to be something that that the the Pelosi faction. I have a lot of respect for Nancy Pelosi, but that seems to be something that that faction doesn't seem to be weighing in their calculus. No, uh, not for a minute. There's not one public indicator that the that 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 kind of thinking in the House of Representatives is in any way guided by uh, either principle or history. And when I was working in the Senate, there were times that came along where uh, you could see that 
this moment <clears throat> that we're dealing with right now is being decided by the way um, at least some people uh, will want to be seen in history. And when I think of votes like that uh, in the Senate when I was there, it was over things like uh, the Iraq wars, uh, the, especially the first one, George H.W. Bush's first attack on Saddam Hussein. Uh, my recollection is that there were over 40 votes in the Senate against it. Um, and that it was, but what it, but it was the most honorable debate I'd ever seen in the Senate because the people who were pro-war got up and made their case, and the people who were anti-war, like the senator I was working for, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, got up and eloquently made their case. And no one on that Senate floor ever questioned the motivation or the patriotism of another speaker at any moment. And people were. I believe more than I'd ever seen, not every one of them, but more than I'd ever seen, were casting votes, uh, looking deep into their souls and looking deep into where this would place them in history. And you might recall that <clears throat> so many Democrats voted against it, uh, that there was a belief that in the next Senate campaign, the you know those any senator who voted against George W. the first Iraq War of George H. W. Bush uh, would be wiped out at the ballot box, and uh, Senator Moynihan suddenly have these Republican challengers uh, in New York who believed they could take him down over that vote, and it didn't happen. Uh, that people uh, respected that vote. Voter voters out there in the country respected the way people voted in either direction. And so when you face a situation like this impeachment question in the House of Representatives, there comes a time with that job, no matter how partisan you might want to play it or how strategic you might need to play it at different times, and no matter how much you have been compromised in varying ways by lobbying influences and contributors and all sorts of things and parochial concerns in your district, there comes a time when you are going to have to cast a vote for history. And that is what seems to be completely ignored by the current leadership in the House of Representatives. I don't think uh, <clears throat> you could come up with a matter uh, that this House of Representatives would see as a moral issue that must be addressed for, his, for history. I, I don't think you could, because there's no greater one in my lifetime than this one. And they are just watching it happen and, you know, playing an extremely deliberate delaying game. All of this stuff about when Nancy Pelosi was saying, after Michael Cohen pleaded guilty and Nancy Pelosi and those other leadership Democrats were still saying we have to wait for the Mueller report. That was never true. Absolutely never true. The House of Representatives began uh, impeaching the impeachment process on President Richard Nixon before the special prosecutor finished working and issued a report. Uh, that, that was never necessary. And, and so, but it was a delaying game because they knew how long Mueller was going to take. Uh, it turns out Mueller actually... Uh, pushed the report and rushed the report because Nancy Pelosi was saying, I have to wait for the Mueller report. Uh, why didn't uh, Robert Mueller uh, subpoena the president of the United States? Timing, the length of time it would take is the reason we've been given so far. Well, but there's no time limit. Well, you, he's never said, and I doubt he'll say it next week, but he's never said, well, you know, we need to get it done because Nancy Pelosi was saying they can't do anything. 
until they get the Mueller report, you know. Um, and so he felt himself under a, a time constraint because of that. But now it's just a game of uh, uh, on the Democratic leadership side of delaying it, delaying it, delaying it to the point where, you know, all the ducks will be in a row sometime around a year from now. And then you can say, well, the election is just a couple of months away. It's not worth it. And it's not worth it, remember, was Nancy Pelosi's first comment back when, uh, you know, the president had not even uh, finished uh, two full years of his presidency. Well, it'd be interesting, of course, to see what the consequences of this are. And, I, you know, it's, it's striking even to me as, as listening to you discuss this, that while we have enumerated a number of uh, items that might be in articles of impeachment against the president, haven't really talked about Trump and Russia. We haven't talked about his defense of the Russians. We haven't talked about uh, his uh, uh, decisions subsequent to all that to uh, not prepare for Russian intervention in 2020. We haven't talked about Puerto Rico. We haven't talked about children in cages uh, and, and, and on and on. And, uh, and so we have this fraught moment. Uh, and it brought to mind, um, to me, the moment that you describe in your book, Playing with Fire, which is a terrific book, and I really recommend uh, anybody out there in our listenership who hasn't uh, gotten a copy to get a copy, but talks about this election in 1968, which was a watershed in American history. It was not just the year that Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were shot. It came on the heels of the Civil Rights Act. It came in the midst of national... Um, distress over the war in Vietnam and, and, and serious controversy over that. Uh, it was one of those turning points. And as you look through American history, you might make the case that this is a similar turning point, not just because of Trump, uh, uh, but the rise of Trumpism and extremism associated with it, uh, the divisions that Trumpism addresses, which include demographic shifts that are occurring in the United States, things where we've seen tensions elsewhere over the past few years in Ferguson and Baltimore. You've, you've had Me Too movement. We have inequality at the highest levels in, in, in American history since the Great Depression. Um, uh, we could go on. The, 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 the question on my mind is, are we going to approach 2020 and see it as one of those watersheds, as you describe uh, in your book, uh, or is you know are we going to revert and, and sort of say let's let's go back to Obamaism or let's let's maintain Trumpism and and we're not going to be quite ready to make that shift. And of course, no one can predict it, but you wrote the book, and I'm wondering what you see perhaps as parallels. Well, I, I do think um, the, the well, well, first of all, I, I, I'm relatively simple-minded about this coming election, uh, and that is uh, looking at it using all of the tools that we have always used in looking at elections. Uh, where the t And by the way, the tools, generally speaking, work rather well, and they worked reasonably well in the uh, Clinton uh, Trump election. The the tools, which is to say polls, indicated Hillary Clinton would win by roughly the amount that she won. Um, the tools did not penetrate the electoral college formula 
and say, oh, by the way, at the same time, the distribution of Trump voters now is such that uh, Wisconsin will tip and Pennsylvania will do this. And then he will be the president coming in second in the in the Democratic vote. Um, and so and, you know, no one's ever predicted that before. So the, the polls, the presidential polling is always about who's going to get more votes. She got more votes and she got more votes by approximately amount. The polls said she would. The polls now say that Donald Trump cannot be reelected. The polls now say anywhere from 52 to 54 percent of voters have firmly and irrevocably decided they will not vote for Donald Trump under any circumstances. Um, he is far behind Joe Biden on the one-on-one polls. There are other polls in which he's far behind Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, and so uh, he was never, by the way, uh, far behind Hillary Clinton in the polls. He was always about three points behind her, which is within the margin of error. Uh, he's way outside of the margin of error in losing to Joe Biden. He's outside of the margin of error in losing to Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, uh, and Bernie Sanders. And so uh, as of now, the polling on Donald Trump is in fact prohibitive. And there's another external fact that we know just as observers of what's happened uh, during the Trump presidency. Unlike every reelected president in history, and by the way, every president in history, because even the ones who lost reelection still tried to do this, Donald Trump has never once tried to speak to a voter who did not already vote for him. And most elected presidents in their victory speech on election night start talking to the other side. Richard Nixon, who was a profoundly divisive candidate in 1968, started talking to the other side in his uh, victory speech. Um, and th- they all do. Ronald Reagan did when he, he won. Um, Bill Clinton did when he won. Um, all presidents do. And then they spend a considerable amount of time over the next four years trying to do things uh, in government that will attract the other side, that will pick up another three or four percent of the vote that he could that that, you know, president running for election can pull back his way. Uh, Donald Trump's never done it. He's all he's done is uh, re-encourage the most rabid Trump supporters. Um, And he's lost, according to polls, a significant number of people who voted for him. So uh, I I believe what is very likely to happen is Trump loses re-election and Trumpism pretty much goes with him pretty much goes out the door with him because it turns on this um, this uniquely fraudulent character uh, who brought a unique set of uh, elements uh, to the to the image of this person. You know, the idea that he's a billionaire, which he's not and successful businessman, which he's not all that stuff is part of it. I mean, it wasn't like Trump was a, you know, former senator or, you know, or any of the other kinds of uh, people who run for president. So, and Republicanism, we will discover, Republicanism will return in some other form. They will no longer be in favor of tariffs. They will no longer be in favor of deficit spending. Uh, They will be, with the Democratic president, suddenly the deficit will be the most important thing in the world, and the national debt will be the most important thing in the world. Uh, And Lindsey Graham will go back to being some kind of uh, self-appointed moralist about uh, all things that he has stopped caring about when it uh, comes into uh, focus with Trump. And and so uh, 
I do think uh, that this is a, a passing moment. Uh, and the other thing that it teaches us is this this Trump four years, five years, if we include the campaign, is that there's no such thing as precedent anymore. There, there's no precedent for anything. And that if Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats do not impeach Donald Trump for what he did, that does not in any way mean that the Republicans will not impeach a Democratic president for less. And I mean much less. Uh, and it also doesn't mean that a different group of Democrats 20 years from now wouldn't impeach a Republican president for less. Uh, there's just no precedent at all. It, none of it has any meaning uh, in terms of precedent. Uh, and the only place where precedent continues to hold any kind of noticeable sway is in uh, judicial opinion. But in the rest of the way we govern uh, with these two parties in Washington, um, precedent is the most useless concept you could try to bring to to what it all means and what it means in the future. Well, I'm going to distill that down into a, a glimmering of optimism. Uh, yes, yes, it is. No, it absolutely is. I, I, I believe that uh, that's my bet. My bet is an optimistic bet that when Trump is flushed out electorally, um, it, it all goes with him. And, uh, you know, I mean, Richard Nixon won the presidency by less than 1% of the vote. Uh, JFK won the presidency by less than 1% of the vote. And the media and the culture treats that a week after the election as the same thing as a landslide. They pretend that the whole country loved JFK. Uh, they, they, they pretend, you know, these things about the country and, and politicians get to say things like, oh, well, you can't do impeachment because it's so divisive. Really? How about a presidential election that's decided by less than 1% of the vote? How divisive is that? <laughs> you know, and, so, and, and, you know, uh, Trump didn't win by 1% of the vote. You know, that, that's very, very important. Uh, and if the Electoral College had just, you know, stayed in conformity uh, with the Democratic vote, uh, then we wouldn't be talking about Trump or Trumpism or any of that stuff. I mean, you know, you lose in this country if you lose by one percent of the vote. Um, no one talks about John Kerryism, you know, because it came in second. Uh, by the way, uh, closer in vote count than Donald Trump came to Hillary Clinton. And so, um, you know, but, but the media pretended after that election that it was George W. Bush's world. You know, that's what we do. We overreact to these very, very slight marginal victories uh, in presidential elections as if something, uh, you know, big happened uh, in the thinking of the whole country. Trump has been disapproved of every single day of his political life, every day of it. Uh, and every day of his presidency, by a very significant majority, he has been disapproved of. We would be having a profoundly sad conversation today if Donald Trump's approval number was 55 and his disapproval number was 45. We would be saying, what is this country? Uh, when, when did sanity become a 45 percent minority uh, in the country? Uh, sanity is holding and sanity is opposed to Trump and sanity never wanted him in the first place. And sanity is the majority. Well, I, I presume that if he had a 55% approval rating, we would be having this conversation from, you know, our, our cottages <laughs> side by side in the Caribbean or something like that. But, um, mm -hmm. 
I, you know, I, I do hope, as, 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 as just a personal wish, as I think about the scenario you describe, that if, in fact, there are three or four Democrats that can beat Trump, that the Democrats then make the decision to pick the one of them who is actually going to be the best president, and that we don't distill this all down to just an election. Uh, because the day after the election, everything you said will be true, and we'll be into a new cycle of governance. And if that president uh, is seen as as weak or ineffective or it, unable to run again, then that could pose that could pose some problems going forward. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, if if your if your prediction is true, the 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 the, the question shifts. In any event, we've come to the end of our time. I'm incredibly grateful for you taking 45 minutes out of your uh, busy schedule. Uh, I encourage everybody who is out there listening uh, to uh, watch Lawrence on, 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 on The Last Word every, every night at 10 o'clock. And you can even watch reruns of it on the weekend or listen to it as a podcast. Go get his book, uh, uh, even though it came out about a year ago, um, uh, Playing With Fire, because... Uh, it's it's very relevant to now, and it's an extremely well told uh, book. And you could tell everything that you learned writing for West Wing because it's a it's the the stories within the book really come to light. Uh, and uh, we're very grateful for for you joining us on this the two hundredth episode of Deep State Radio. Thanks very much. It's it's an honor to be two hundred. <laughs> yes. All right. Bye bye. Hello and welcome again to Deep State Radio. This is our second interview on this, our 200th anniversary program. Um, And uh, we are joined now by Harry Littman, who is an American lawyer and a a law professor. He's a commentator many of you have seen probably on television, or you may have heard his podcast, uh, Talking Feds, which has been very successful and uh, has actually been in Washington this week recording a batch of podcasts with Washington-type folks uh, on current issues uh, uh, confronting us as a country. And so I thought it'd be good to get Harry in here and hear what he's learned uh, from uh, from the various uh, sessions that they've had in D.C., and then maybe I'll ask a few questions. Hi, Harry. Welcome to the episode. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on number 200. Yeah, well, when you do fifty a week, it goes. No, no, we we don't do fifty a week. But um, in, in, in one day talking, well, talking feds did six this week. That's the, at yeah, that, that I was day, really, I, I was really, really impressed by that. We could really pump up our numbers if we start doing that. Um, sure. uh, but I, I was interested in it. You were at uh, Georgetown Law School, of course, one of our founders in the. Uh, uh, of Deep State Radio is uh, Rosa Brooks, who until recently was right. an associate dean there and is a professor there. And uh, so we always take great interest in Georgetown Law Center. Um, what, describe a little bit about what you did and, and, and maybe give of, uh, our listeners a couple of the headlines that you came away with. Sure. Sure. Thanks. So we did a six podcast series. We taped it live, thanks to the hospitality of Georgetown, and, and in particular, the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, also the American Constitution Society. So the, the, bat, the, the batch, as you say, were, was, was uh, about, you know, after Mueller, 
what uh, what next. And there were there were different things. The umbrella theme really was, you know, if there was a sixty-four thousand dollar question for the six panels, it was, you know, what's what's the damage look like in uh, in the year, say, after Trump leaves office, if some of the erosion of the um, stability and vitality of U.S. democratic institutions gonna going to stay away or will with with good work will will it um remain uh you know at least vital enough so we're 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 the same basic country that that you know we we were three or four years ago so headlines um there were some really interesting panels we just finished the two we did today um one was with um Andy McCabe and Ron Klain and Matt Miller and Tim Lynch and it was uh, about sort of it focused more on Mueller's testimony next week and kind of issues of strategy and tactics. And then we had an interesting one at the very end, a kind of nuts and bolts ones with really hot shot experienced trial lawyers about how exactly they would frame the testimony to Mueller. But um, in between, we had uh, uh, panels on, about um, the, the sort of Republican anti-Trump uh, groups like, and Bill Crystal was there, the pardon power with Bob Bauer, who's quite the brainy guy. Uh, if you, if you've seen him, you know, right or on, uh, TV. And then, uh, we, we did, we started it with a very interesting, um, episode about the uh, erosion of norms of, of the, you know, the rules of the road between DOJ and the White House and Jamie Gorelick, um, the former deputy attorney general. And I think I got to say my personal idol in the world, and um, at least in, as public servants go, uh, was on that along with Paul Fishman and uh, Amy Jeffress. So quite a quite a um, you know undertaking that that we put together and uh, back to back to back to back to back. And I'm very uh, we just now finished an hour ago, and I'm feel I'm taking the big the deep breath of relief. <laughs> well, con- congratulations on that. And of course, I am Thank familiar you. with Bob and with Jamie and the way that one is. Uh, having lived in Washington for 25 years, which right. is to say all of our kids went to the same school together. Um, uh-huh, but, that's right, yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I, I just had this conversation with, with Lawrence O'Donnell, and one of the things uh-huh. that I think came out of it, and I, I, I will ask you a question in a minute about the Mueller hearing next week, but one of the things that came out of it is, the question, you know, sort of are we placing too much focus on Mueller? Mueller is not... Uh, the only case that is pending against the president, Mueller is not, you know, I mean, it was one investigation and we have obviously the SDNY investigation, in which president has been, uh, you know, effectively named as a as a as a as a. Uh, a felon in in terms of yeah. campaign finance law. Uh, there are other uh, pending investigations ranging from emoluments cases, even with the setback this week, to um, uh, 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 cases that have to do with uh, other members of his team, taxes, et cetera, et cetera. And, and by putting all of our eggs in the Mueller basket, we sort of set ourselves up for somebody to say, you know, Barr, who is not really an attorney general so much as he is the press secretary for the president, you know, coming out and saying stuff like, 
well, uh, no, no collusion, no obstruction, no Mueller, we're done. And yeah, and we're done. That's a big, is this a great point? And we did chew on it for a fair bit on the panel uh, today. So it's not simply, you know, lost opportunity there. But if you play it poorly and, and gear up so much, finally we have Mueller. And it is, I mean, it certainly will not be a non-event. But it, there's a distinct enough possibility that, you know, they score some points. It's overall good bar. Everyone predicted would actually hold a press conference before you know, 6 p.m. to spin it his um, way. And then are you basically out of gas? If, on the other hand, you try to set it up so to, for a kind of, you, you know, the basic strategic question that th that panel uh, mulled over, so to speak, was do you stick you know, assiduously to the four corners of the report or do you try to set up a subsequent in investigative agenda? Do you try to make the case through Mueller and the report that there are really important um, trails to continue to follow? But that's not a risk-free strategy uh, either. For one, everyone is conscious that to the extent you stray outside the report, uh, Mueller might decline to answer and you have a sort of um, if not uh, antagonistic, because I, I, I know Mueller, I, I anticipate he'll be very sort of polite and even responsive, but you have a kind of uh, at best draw, and uh, then you're, you know, it's just not clear what happens a, a week from now. And nor is it clear. I think the, um, the Dems are not united in whether they want to have a robust investigative agenda starting, you know, a week after Mueller. Though you, you probably noticed today that that uh, Kushner uh, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and a couple other people got subpoenaed. So it's really tricky. And, of course, at the center of it is Mueller himself, who is a, uh, a not an easy uh, witness to question. You can't be – certainly you can't be hostile toward him. But uh, if you're too respectful and there's no effort to really uh, say anything beyond the report, you know, have you missed an opportunity? And to say, you know, to put a fine point on it, I don't think there's much confidence that there's either a lot of coordination or a lot of skill among the likely, you know, panoply of questioners come Wednesday. Well, that's you know that's worrisome, and and yeah. you know I think as one looks ahead to this uh, 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 set of 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 uh, hearings, because there's a, a, a right. an intel yeah. hearing and a judiciary committee uh, here, and the and, and the deputies behind the scenes, which could be interesting. Sorry to interject, right? But but yeah. but, but you know, in all likelihood, Mueller has been nothing if not. Uh, um, uh, understated, judicious, controlled in his his approach yeah. to things, and uh, you know could have drawn some conclusions and didn't. Uh, seems unlikely as an experienced guy to be drawn into uh, asserting those conclusions after the fact, uh, and uh, you know is kind of setting the stage for uh, Republicans to. And, and Barr, if he does a press conference, somebody to say, well, there you had it. You heard from Mueller and nothing new. And 
Uh, the agreement, uh, the 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 Mueller report stands, and let's now move on. And yeah, and and, and I and I and I worry about this is just as much. The, the there's a bunch of Democrats who'd like that to be the outcome. There's a bunch of Democrats, you, were, you know, yeah, who, go ahead. who want to be let off the hook of having exactly. to go and proceed with uh, uh, even even uh, as as as. Um, Lawrence Tribe has described it as, a, you know, an impeachment inquiry, not just a, a you know, a, the, you know, as a kind of a, a, a precy to an imp a formal impeachment process. Yeah, so right, they don't want to be the party of no, and it's, it's obviously internal, even turmoil uh, within the the caucus that Pelosi is trying to manage. But I, I do think you put your finger right on the the kind of core strategic point. And we had different uh, opinions in the in these last few panels. The perfect thing that could come out of Mueller's testimony is if he would clarify and connect the dots and say what anyone with any experience who read the report will, would say with, you know, confidence. It's just a fact it's that they clearly found obstruction of justice, for example, and at least four um, uh, cases. But so the, 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 you know, uh, the home run uh, uh, answer would be something like, yes, but for the OLC memo, we would have found that the elements are satisfied. But if you try to push in that direction, and and you're you're left with a with a sort of polite stone wall of uh, I you know I'm, I don't say anything that's outside the report. What emerges, what we've had over the last several weeks, is just a really rough soundbite. You, you can you can try to make the kind of four sentence explanation of here's why he really found this or that, but it is just not clean, and it doesn't pierce through the kind of torpor of the the public overall. So if you're left with what's in the four corners, you you fall into somewhat tortured formulations like, well, he didn't exactly find not to exonerate, and it's, it's kind of legalistic and head-spinning. But it's not at all clear they can get the kind of clean articulation that not only would be so instrumental— but in fact, is only fair. It's the only real fair reading of the of at least uh, certain incidents in the report. Yeah, well, be that as it may, the, the 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 reality is that Mueller and his team of highly expert um, lawyers clearly sought to um, avoid anything inflammatory. And and you know I I I read the Mueller report twice now and you know yeah. it's, it's very clear if you read the Mueller report that there was collusion and that there was uh, a, a likelihood that they would have found more had they not been as Mueller pointed out obstructed in that and that there was obstruction but. Mueller goes to great lengths to say, well, let's look at, you know, what legal terminology we can use with regard to right. conspiracy. And, and it doesn't it, it doesn't it doesn't meet those criteria for us to determine that there's a crime. And on obstruction, he talks about the OLC document and he says, you know, this is this is not up to us. We are not drawing a conclusion. 
um, he walks up to the line. He never crosses the line. And if that's right, where he right. is in this hearing, what he's going to do is prove that crimes co- were committed, but but not be willing to say crimes were committed. And from a public perspective, that's the same as saying they weren't committed, I think. that So very possibly, right? I mean, maybe that's a, you know, a slight gain, but not very much. This was, I, I got to say, the core strategic question that the expert trial lawyers, and, and this was an interesting show for us. We didn't do the normal just feds like Bill Jeffress, who you may know, you know, the, the sort of maybe best trial lawyer in town, represented Scooter Libby, has been doing it for 30 years. He just took it in a very sort of expert nuts and bolts way. And, you, and you've got your finger on exactly, do you, do you try to just go up to the point that Mueller did go to? Uh, and and where all the conduct is delineated, and then stop as you might sometimes in a trial, and and hope that last conclusion is drawn by the jury, in this case the American people, or do you you know ask a witness who is not hostile? I mean, he doesn't want to be there, but he but he's responsive. Do you try to to get him to do the um, really straightforward? conclusion that follows from his various premises. And that that's, in, in essence, going outside the four corners, as he said. Well, it seems to me that the the issue, strategically, and I wasn't in yeah. these, these, these sessions, so, right. and I'm not a lawyer, so, you know, steer me. Uh, yeah, well, steer. well, everyone else wasn't in the sessions, and they're not lawyers, so, yeah. you know, you know better in some ways. But, but, but it seems to me that the, the right thing to do, the essential thing to do is a kind of a frame shift where you say, Mr. Mueller, um, you approach this um, as special counsel looking at legal definitions of crimes within the guidelines of the Department of Justice. We are the United States Congress. We have the responsibility of oversight and potentially of drawing conclusions in terms of high crimes and misdemeanors which have a completely different set of criteria. So our question of you, a public servant who is paid tax dollars by the U.S. Uh, government, yeah. is, uh, you know, are to help us with our task and to try to, to shift to away from—because if you stay behind the very narrow legal definitions and leave it in the purview of the Department of Justice, we know exactly where that's going to lead us. Yeah, so I agree. And I think that like what you just put is, an, is a perfect example of something that Mueller will give. You know, he, he's not going to just grunt and say that's not on page 388. I think he will say yes uh, to that. And then, uh, you know, th- but then I think the question becomes, all right, if he says yes to that and the, the DOJ has a press conference that says it's all over at the end of the day and... Uh, you know, it's a week later. Is there any kind of traction for moving forward, or are you at uh, the end of the road? But I, I personally, for what it's worth, and these were some really expert trial lawyers, um, uh, would endorse the idea of a few, like, gentle, you know, like cutting the wake in, in water skiing or something, a few gentle forays outside the four corners, you have to sort of think carefully about whichever way he goes. As long, you know, you, you don't, God forbid, want to 
want to own the soundbite where you get slapped down. But I think he will be, you know, responsible about trying to answer certain questions. That's a perfect one. And, uh, you know, another big one is that what are the chances that he will acquiesce or agree that there's some daylight between him and Bill Barr? Another big one, to what extent, if given the opportunity, will he stand up for the FBI in a way that will, you know, will actually effectively be a pushback against Trump? All those three are not within the four corners, but, but, and they'd be calculated risks. But, I, you know, I think they'd be worth uh, taking. Yeah, well, I, I, I have to say my expectations were that this was going to be underwhelming. And I've cautioned people who yeah. are like, oh, boy, this yeah. is going to be transformative and just sort of say, no, I think, I know. you know, read I know. the agreement. Now, having said that, if I were going to handicap this thing, and we're running out of time, this could be my last question, I guess. But if I were going to handicap okay. this thing, um, I would say that the greatest likelihood of news being made at the hearing is that Republicans go after Mueller in a very aggressive way, either about his background, his team's background, the, 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 the reasons uh, for the investigation, the justification um, of, of, of the investigation, and that he shuts that down. And that, yeah, and and that if he does that, that'll be the. To me, that's the more likely news to come out of this. So how wrong? It's am certainly, I? it's certainly possible. They've been, you know, imprudent, and what a what a rough road to hope. You know, trying to get up and call him a crazy Democrat loving deep state guy. But Ron Klain had a similar point. You know, this is, after all, an exercise in political theater. And if what comes out, for whatever reason, the, the kind of one or two or three sound bites shift the tide or, the, or momentum one way or another, that's what matters, you know, whether or not it's, it's precisely along the trajectory of the, the crimes that Mueller found he committed is, I think, as you suggest, Secondary, the, you know, the question is the overall dynamic and whether or not Congress emerges with a, with a kind of national consensus to keep digging. Well, Ron Klain's a very smart guy, and of course, <laughs> and, and and of course, his his kids also went to school with my kids at the yeah, same school. Of course, there you go. Um, so uh, that you know, but but I I have a lot of respect for him and the conclusions that he's yeah. drawn. Uh, and and for you and I, I really uh, wish that I could have attended uh, these the sessions and will listen to your podcast. And I encourage everybody who listens to Deep State Radio um, to listen in to Talking Feds, which is a, a really really smart, uh, insightful views on issues uh, just like the ones we're talking about here. Congratulations on uh, your big week in Washington, and I hope that you now get a chance to catch your breath. All right. Well, thank you very much. Likewise, I'm sure as to Deep State Radio. And I will say one point, which is if people are interested in that panel in particular, C-SPAN was there and recorded, and it'll be broadcast several times over the next week on TV. They'll have the exciting spectacle of four you know, guys in suits. Well, not always guys. Uh, talking over these points. Well, we we, <laughs> so, we pride thank ourselves. Thank you very much for your good words. Though. We we pride ourselves in having the nerdiest audience 
any, anywhere. I don't know. And, and, maybe well, we'll have a nerd football game or something. Yeah, maybe yeah. we could do the nerd, could do nerd Olympics between your listeners and ours. <laughs> Exactly. Um, All right. Thank you so much for having me again. Congratulations on your big landmark. Something for us to aspire to. Good luck with that. Uh, Hopefully we can get you on sometime again in the future. And uh, uh, congratulations. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.